Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Faz Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. It is so nice to see you. It has been a hot minute. Congratulations on your fresh kid. Oh, thank you. You know, <laughs> he, he's now a month old, uh, baby Amal. Uh, we're doing well. We went through a little bout of COVID in our household. Our uh, two uh, unvaccinated young uh, daughters, six and three years old, got it and thankfully uh, did not suffer major symptoms, but we are through it. And in happier news, you have come back to this podcast as a married woman. Congratulations, Amanda. Freshly legally obligated to a man I met on the internet, just as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hope for everybody out there in the world. Congratulations to you and your husband. Thank uh, you. Many joyous years to come, no doubt. So, Faz, while I was away, who did you talk to? I talked with Michael Sandel, who is one of my favorite professors in the country. He teaches at Harvard. He's a political philosopher, social justice philosopher. And, you know, it's a discussion of meritocracy, Amanda. And I'm not sure. when, When I say the word meritocracy, what comes to your mind? People succeeding or failing based on their merits, on what they do and whether they deserve it. Is that, yeah, and that, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the ethic of America, right? It's this idea that, oh, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you just work hard, everyone will rise. You know, you can get into the best universities with just putting your head in the books. And yes, there was probably a period of time in America where there was this sense of equality of opportunity and you could rise in that fashion mm-hmm. and form. Certainly my parents did coming as immigrants to this country. That rising uh, has become nearly impossible for a new generation. And we've still maintained this ethic of, Oh, just merit. If you just work hard, you'll just rise. And of course, in America now, it's become more class-based. You would almost say caste-like, where if you are born into a very nice lot in Mm. life, you will probably maintain that lot in life. And if you are not born into it, the question is, what are we doing to help people advance and push through it? And is it working for everybody? It seems like a conversation in which really challenged the concept of the American dream, which is really complicated to the sense of what it means to be an American. That's right. And and the way in which he chooses to do that is to look at the language that politicians like President Obama mm-hmm. and others use. And it's, you know, it's thoughtful. Even if you might disagree with them, it causes you to think of like, hey, you know, one of my favorite examples we get into in, in the interview is this discussion of 
well, everything has to be smart, smart grids, smart technology, smart everything. And there's a sense that, well, this politics, if done right, should speak to those who are really smart. And, <laughs> and, and you just have to be smart. And when you're smart, then everyone can agree on the facts. In fact, it kind of obfuscates that there are kind of values fights, there mm. are moral fights about the kind of politics we want to have. And, that, and I think that's his whole point is we should be focused on those kind of ideological, moral arguments, values-based arguments in order to persuade people. Something that the technocracy of our country will sometimes kind of dissipate, right? It's like, oh, listen, you know, let's not talk about our differences. Let's talk about the fact that if we just agree on the same set of facts, we can solve climate change. It's like, no, that's not the way it really works necessarily in this country. Well, I am super excited to hear the conversation and to, to get a sense of what you guys dug in on. Before we do that, I want to talk about Texas because I think it'd be remiss if we didn't. So last week, Texas signed into law Senate Bill 8, which amounts to nearly a complete ban on abortion in the state. It prohibits abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. It makes no exceptions for pregnancies resulting from incest or rape. And in particular, what this law does is create up an enforcement system outside of the state. Citizens, ordinary people, can sue clinics, Uber drivers, doctors, nurses, aides, if you go with someone to an abortion clinic, you can get sued by anyone else in Texas. And then if the person who sues wins, they will be awarded at least $10,000 per abortion if they are successful. It applies to insurance companies that cover abortion. There is no exception for rape or incest. The Supreme Court first declined to do anything and then ultimately issued a ruling saying it could go forward. Essentially what the Texas Republican Party has done is overturn Roe v. Wade in the state. I want to point out something that I think cannot be discussed enough, but it's something we talk about on this podcast all the time. This was not an accident. The outcome of banning abortion in Texas was the specific intended goal of decades of investment in winning state and local office. And I know I sound like a broken record on this, but I cannot say it enough. This was the point. <laughs> and Democrats have been behind the ball for years. I don't want to say this is our fault. It's not our fault. But there was so much we could have done to prevent this and we didn't. And now we are stuck trying to fight in the courts. We are stuck trying to fund abortion funds and ensure that the people who need the health care can get it, whether or not it's legal. And it sucks and it's infuriating. And I really hope to see the Justice Department do more. I hope to see Congress codify Roe v. Wade. I hope that every state with a Democratic state legislator does what New York has done and pass some kind of uh, reproductive health act or codifying Roe v. Wade in the state constitution where possible. You know, we can't go back in time and change the mistakes that we have made as a party, but we can fix it going forward. And I really hope that going into 2022, what Democrats do is invest meaningfully and deeply in every possible state and local election, especially in the red states, because that's where these shitty, shitty laws are going to come from. Places like Texas and Florida and elsewhere. Extremely <laughs> well stated, Amanda. Honestly, it was really great encapsulation of everything that's gone on. This right wing conservative court cannot be trusted to defend the basic premises that have held for decades and decades around Roe v. Wade. So it, it is going to kind of start to evaporate all around the countries. And you will see right-wing judges seize the opportunity to move in this direction unless and until we start to change that. However, this ruling has reverberated in politics around the country where Terry McAuliffe running mm -hmm. for governor in Virginia is now talking about this and forcing the issue against his Republican opponent in that race. I believe this Texas political decision that hurts so many hundreds of thousands of lives of low-income people in Texas will reverberate on the country and hopefully in some areas cause a progressive push in the right direction. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I think something we forget as part of the conversation about abortion and Roe v. Wade is that both are popular. You know, we think, especially in the media landscape, it's very easy to see like the, you know, quote unquote, pro-life or anti-abortion activists as being the loudest voices in the room. But six in 10 Americans support access to abortion in all or most cases. Roe v. Wade is popular. Only 30 percent of Americans want to overturn the law. This stuff is very well liked. People want access to safe abortions. And I think Democrats can't be afraid of running away from that just because the opposition is louder. Our side is more popular. Stand by that and stand up for women and for people who can get pregnant because lives are quite literally on the line. I totally agree. Well, on that uplifting note, (laughs) let's leave it there for now and hear Baz's conversation with Michael Sandel. Professor Sandel, welcome to the Battleground Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you. It's good to meet you finally after our exchanges. For those of you who don't know, Professor Sandel's a, a wonderful professor at Harvard. I had the good fortune of going there, but yet never lottering into his wonderfully popular class. So I have maintained some exchanges with Professor Sandel over the years, but I've always wanted the chance to talk to you in person, having never got that opportunity in college. And uh, you've written a wonderful book called The Tyranny of Merit. And so I, I am eager to have this conversation with you. Okay. Professor Sandel, you know that we're shaped by values that often are injected to us by family, by by media shows around us, by politics, schools, a variety of factors, always constantly applying this gentle pressure on us about how we might think in the society that we're in. And one of those values that has become imbued, particularly in modern American society, is that, hey, uh, you work hard, you rise to the top. It's really just a matter of work ethic. And what you're doing is bringing really a hatchet to the idea of, of a meritocracy and forcing people to reconsider what kinds of notions we'd want in our society. So maybe I ask you that, if not a meritocracy, if not, you know, fierce battles, uh, one-upsmanship over one another, trying to push each other down, what is the aspirational way in which we should think about relating to one another in a society? Well, that's the question. But before I try to answer it, it's worth distinguishing two different problems with meritocracy as we have it today. The first and the most familiar, is that we don't live up to the meritocratic principles we profess. The idea of meritocracy says, very simply, that if chances are equal, the winners deserve their winnings. Well, chances are not equal, far from it. So the project of creating genuine equality of opportunity is far from complete, far from realized. But The second problem with meritocracy is that even if we could achieve it, even if we could realize a perfect meritocracy, the ideal itself is flawed. Now, this is the more controversial argument. Why would even a perfect meritocracy be flawed? Because it's corrosive of the common good. And the reason it's corrosive of the common good is a meritocracy generates attitudes toward success that lead almost inescapably to the divide between winners and losers. Because if we really do earn our place, our success, our achievements, and the rewards the market showers upon the successful, if that's true, as it would be in a perfect meritocracy, then the successful are entitled to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit something they deserve, and by implication, that those who struggle, those left behind, must deserve their fate as well. This is the logic, the moral logic, if you think about it, 
of a perfectly realized meritocracy. Which is why I say the problem isn't only that the chances are not truly equal in our society, but also that perfecting the meritocracy is not an adequate answer to inequality. And it would not make for either a just society or a good society, a healthy, flourishing democracy. And so that's the critique. And that still leaves open the question you've asked about what would an alternative picture look like? Maybe the way we'll premise that conversation, Professor Sandels, my observation of COVID in our society and how we've lived the last year, year and a half. And I think you and I probably would agree that there are a few things that would come around that could potentially build solidarity. And we see when we use that word solidarity, it really kind of an empty and understanding of what it is like to live in another's shoes and what their life might be like and to have respect for it. And so we're all as safe as the undocumented food preparer or driver around us, right? We're right. only as safe as the low-income community that is dealing with COVID testing and treatment. So in this last year, my observation has been, while presenting this great opportunity for solidarity, it is not as if that solidarity has, in my mind, come to the points that I would have hoped it would. In fact, right. you see almost a, a revolution against it. Hey, uh, the hell with the communitarian ethic, the hell with solidarity. I have my individual freedom to rip off my mask, to not get a vaccine shot, and that trumps the idea of us being bonded together in a common humanity of taking care of one another. And I guess I, that's where I start with this setup for you is how could we be utilizing this moment to build the solidarity ethic that we clearly, I feel like are falling short on? It's a hugely important question. And we heard this at the beginning of the pandemic. You remember in the first few weeks, everywhere we turned, we heard, we are all in this together. We heard that from politicians, from advertisers, from celebrities. And this seemed to gesture toward an ethic of solidarity. But as the pandemic unfolded, we found that it revealed and highlighted inequalities that preceded the pandemic, most dramatically in the division between those of us who could work from home and those who either lost their jobs or who, in order to perform their jobs, had to expose themselves to risks on behalf of the rest of us. Now, for a time, I was somewhat optimistic, and I still think there is some hope, perhaps a dim hope, because those of us who worked remotely, who had the luxury of working at home during the pandemic, couldn't help but notice how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. I'm thinking not only of the workers in the hospitals, but also delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, childcare workers. These are not the best paid or most honored members of our society. And yet now we were calling them essential workers. Heroes. So this could be a moment for a broader public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the importance of the contribution they make. Now you may, from what you've said, I think you're pessimistic about whether this moment will be realized, but it still, I think, could be a starting point for a broader public debate about whose contributions to the economy and to the common good really matter most. And that's a debate we have not had during the period of neoliberal globalization and rising inequality. 
I'll see your hope and I'll rise it. I actually think that Senator Sanders and Joe Biden are working on a package with the American Rescue Plan and this reconciliation plan. They are really just honing in almost entirely 100% of going to working class people to improve their lives and really very few to no benefits for the top. And that is very rare. (laughs) If you ever see that ever happen in legislation, it is rare. And so that's a positive thing. And the other positive thing I would note, and what your observation on is, you know, there's this commentary in the elite media or you hear it on CNBC. There's a labor shortage out there. But in fact, in my observation, what is going on is you see these heroes, the people you're talking about, the essential workers standing up in a way that we may have not seen in prior generations and saying that condition in that workplace, if it is not paying me a living wage, if it is not providing child care, I'm going to choose no. I'm going to say that if that employer doesn't raise the bar for me, then I will find someone else to work for or I will stay home. And I think that that revolution is a healthy thing. Yes, I think it's encouraging for all the reasons that you've just suggested. And there's a subtler shift that I've noticed, which takes us back to the hold of meritocratic and technocratic ways of thinking about the economy and about government over the past four decades. Joe Biden, when he was nominated, became the first Democratic nominee for president in 36 years without an Ivy League degree. Now, this may have been a kind of advantage, in part because it may have enabled him to connect a little bit more easily than some of his predecessors with working class voters whom the Democratic Party has struggled to attract in recent decades. But more than that, He seems to be less wedded to the meritocratic solution to structural inequality. Because what has the mainstream Democratic Party had to offer over the past four decades in response to the widening inequality? Instead of confronting it directly and dealing with inequalities of income and wealth and power, what they've offered instead was the rhetoric of rising. The idea of individual upward mobility through higher education, as if that were a satisfactory answer to four decades of wage stagnation and job loss. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, we were told, go get a college education. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. We heard these slogans again and again. Now, on the face of it, it's inspiring to encourage people to go get a college degree in hopes of individual upward mobility. But as a response to inequality, it's woefully inadequate. Not only that, there's an implicit insult in it. The insult is this. If you didn't go to to university, and if you're struggling in the new economy, your failure is your fault. You didn't pull yourself up. You didn't improve yourself sufficiently to compete in the global economy. That insult took a toll. And it took a toll especially on the support of working people for the Democratic Party. So that by 2016, the Democratic Party was more attuned to the interests and outlook and values of the well-educated, well-credentialed professional classes than to the blue-collar voters who, since the New Deal, constituted its base. Now, Biden, he hasn't offered a detailed, worked-out critique of the rhetoric of rising or the meritocratic way of responding to inequality. But he talks more about the dignity of work and less about simply 
pulling up your socks, getting a college degree, and then you can surmount the troubles of wage stagnation and job loss. And he is deploying government in an activist way to try to address the inequalities that have been accumulating. So that, I think, is also, though it's, it's subtle, it has to do with a kind of rhetorical turn away from the meritocratic hubris that I think alienated many working people from the Democratic Party. I completely agree with you, and I do see in, in Joe Biden someone who genuinely has a compassionate understanding of people without a college degree. And I think you and I 100% agree on that. Really, if you think of politics in this day and age, that tends to be the dividing line. And a lot of people articulate various other dividing lines around race and gender and uh, other issues. To my mind, it is class and it is specifically degrees. That, and if you look at that across the board, it helps explain the divisions in the modern American society politically. And it's something that we have to address. And I want to get into this conversation. This is this is the reason I wanted to bring you on. The book is wonderfully fascinating. I hope everybody will you know read on the tyranny of merit. Battleground needs to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Michael Sandel. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to Professor Michael Sandel. What I see from you, Professor Sandel, doing it is saying in the working class, you have two different effects going on. The one effect is most obvious, I think, and, and talked about in Diseases of Despair by some of your colleagues in the academia who have really properly diagnosed that the lived experience of the working class has deteriorated, right? They're dying from suicide and alcohol abuse, and uh, you know the, the quality of life is suffering. But in addition to that, Professor Sandel, what you're saying also is that we're having an effect on the psychology of the working class, right. making them feel as they are experiencing a, a deteriorating lifestyle, we're actually doubling down and making them feel ashamed about it, feeling humiliated about it, feeling that they have failed. And I would say, you know, we traveled the country with Senator Sanders all over, and one of the toughest conversations he would always have is about healthcare in America, right? And you would, he would inevitably bring up, you know, tell me about your copay, tell me about your struggles in your family, tell me about how much, and you would see the shame, Professor Sandel. You, you, people were hesitant to talk about it because in talking about it, in revealing the power of their struggles, it was as if they were admitting their own failure. Yeah. And I think what you do in the book wonderfully well is capture that psychology. And I wonder if you could take a moment to distill that for people. What you've described and what you and Bernie on the campaign trail experienced is the sense that your failure is your fault. That's what middle-income and low-income and working people have been told implicitly. Your failure is your fault. 
you didn't get a good enough education. In America, you can make it if you try. And if that's true, then if you're struggling, it must mean your failure is your fault. And I think what you've just described poignantly illustrates the corrosive and demoralizing effect of that meritocratic credentialist political project. Can, can I uh, interrupt right there, Professor? Yeah, yeah. Because you have this paragraph in your book, and sometimes it's useful to just have these concrete examples for people so they get a sense of what you're talking about. This meritocratic verbiage, that language, matters. And you document in one wonderful graph uh, that I'm going to read for people. More than any other aspect of his political rhetoric, you write, President Obama's constant talk of quote-unquote smart policies highlighted the connection between technocracy and meritocracy. For Obama, quote-unquote smart was the ultimate term of praise. He used the words quote-unquote smart diplomacy, smart foreign policy, smart regulations, smart growth, smart spending cuts, smart investments in education, smart climate policy, and so on and so forth. There's a lot more examples of it. But I do think that what you've hit on there is the way – it's not just the language because that language means something about the policies that he was thinking about articulating and how he wanted people to conceive of it. These ideas are not necessarily – populist and that they will help everybody rise or it will help the working class succeed. It is that they are smart. And because they are smart, a appeal to a certain portion of this populist more. And it tells you about the courtship and who they're driving that policy change towards. And that rhetoric, I assume you believe, you know, Biden has kind of moved away from, but that is what you're really confronting in many ways, right? In policy design and policy articulation, this idea that we target it to the smart and we do things in a quote unquote smart way. Yes. And this rhetoric creeps up on us so subtly for a time that we scarcely notice it, and it seems natural, which is why in the book I presented this litany of contexts in which President Obama and some of his predecessors, and Hillary Clinton also, used smart as the ultimate term of praise. But what's damaging about it is it encourages a technocratic way of conceiving the public good. It privileges a kind of credentialism, being smart, and its conceit is that it's presenting the policy as smart, something any well-informed, sensible person would endorse or embrace. And this slides over the politically contestable ideological character of genuine democratic deliberation. If the choice between this public policy and that is simply figuring out which one is the smart one, this relegates decision-making to experts, to technocrats, to the credentialed, to people who can identify the smart policies. And by implication, it drains politics of ideological contest and conviction. And it leads to a kind of complacence also among those who think it's enough to describe a policy as smart, from making the argument, the moral and civic argument for this tax policy or that tax policy. So this is a matter of rhetoric, but just as you say, it points to and finds expression in actual views about the economy. And that this credentialism also has, almost without our noticing it, shaped who gets to be in representative government. Those of us who spend our time in the company of the credentialed can easily forget 
that most Americans do not have a four-year college degree. Now, look at the backgrounds of people who are in the Senate and in the Congress, in the House, and for that matter, in state legislatures. So the majority of Americans don't have a four-year college degree. Almost none of them, just a tiny handful of them, make their way into elected office. And the result is that working people, and according to the Labor Department, working class is people in manual clerical roles, constitute about half of the country. But they only account for 2%, 2% of the members of Congress. And even in state legislatures, which would seem to be closer to the people, only 3%. So I think we're almost unaware of the way in which the momentum of meritocratic, technocratic, credentialist ways of talking about politics, of debating economic policy, and of regarding our fellow citizens creep into our public life with a corrosive effect on democracy. And also it generates resentments because this does not go unnoticed. One of the most potent sources of Trump's appeal was his appeal to grievances, the sense that elites are looking down on us. And this sense of grievance of demoralization, of humiliation, of anger, was not misplaced. There was plenty in Trump's political appeal that was odious and racist, but his ability to tap in to this sense of grievance, Democrats had better figure out the source of those grievances, or this may prove a momentary respite from that kind of politics. I mean, you've gone right into the direction that I wanted to, because I think I see in your book a really wonderful criticism of liberalism gone astray and losing its roots and its philosophical moorings. And I think I was left with this lingering question in yeah. my mind, which is if liberalism is failing, can we assume or should we assume that conservatism, as identified by Donald Trump in this case, are they doing something right? Is it merely that the failure of liberalism has ceded the battleground and the playing field to the right and they've taken advantage of it? Or are they doing something affirmatively to capture uh, success. And as I turn the question over to you, I, I just you know want to give the audience a couple of data points here. You know, Joe Biden ends up reclaiming a little bit more of the white non-college support in this country that had been kind of losing steam among Democratic voters up to 2020. But nevertheless, Donald Trump's biggest supporting block in this country was white people without a college degree, yeah. and he captured about 60, 65 percent of those right. did very well. And so I guess. That's the question, right? Are they doing something right that we need to heed? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Politically, yes. In terms of policy, no. So what I think the Democrats need to learn, first they need to notice that they somehow managed to alienate working people. Now, part of it, and I can hear some friends saying, yeah, but that's because Trump appealed to racism. And he certainly did. But that's not the whole story. And I think if we don't look for factors in addition to the racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, misogynist appeals of Trump, we are going to miss something important. And that is that the Democratic Party has promoted policies, a version of neoliberal finance-driven globalization, that rightly drove out and alienated many working people to say nothing of the insult of the meritocratic way of responding to the inequalities that resulted 
from those policies. So what the Republicans have done right has been really more in the political, rhetorical level. The theater. Identifying this resentment. Now, in office, Trump's policies, he was a plutocratic populist. His policies, <laughs> essentially. More billionaires in his cabinet, I think, than any point in American history. Yeah, and he wanted <laughs> to get rid of the health care that was helping the very people whose resentments yes. he tapped into. So in terms of his policies, no. The one gesture he made, though in, a, in an unsuccessful way, was to reconsider free trade agreements, TPP, going back to NAFTA. Here, it's interesting, there was a certain overlap in the pronounced policies of Trump and those of Bernie. Both were critics of the free trade agreements that were promoted by mainstream Democrats and Republicans alike. And in the campaign, though this went by the wayside, Trump, like Bernie, was critical of the role of Wall Street finance and claimed he would rein it in, which he didn't, to the contrary. But I think what Democrats can learn is that, first, Democrats need to reconnect with working people. And second, they need to do it in a way that addresses structural issues in the economy, not just offering individual upward mobility. This involves raising fundamental questions about who contributes what, really, to the economy and to the common good. And once we begin to ask this question, we have to take up the question of finance. What about the outsized role that finance has come to play in recent decades in the economy? Often, highly speculative versions of finance that have very little to do with creating new investment in the real economy. And so, for example, I think we should have a debate about taxation, beginning with this question. Why is it that we tax earnings from labor at a higher rate than earnings from capital gains and dividends? Why is that? Because implicitly, that way of taxing implies that what working people do actually is worth less than what people engaged in finance contribute. Here's another example. What about in the tax system? shifting the burden of taxation from labor to financial speculation, wealth, and for that matter, a carbon tax, as a way of expressing the dignity of work. This is a, a way of thinking and arguing about the economy and about the tax system that isn't only about trying to shift the burden of tax to those who can better bear it, that's important, but also as a way of provoking a broader debate about whose contributions really matter. We've outsourced our judgment about what contributions really matter to markets. But the market's verdict is flawed. If the market were an accurate measure of social value, then we would have to agree that what a hedge fund manager contributes or a high-speed trader contributes is 900 or 1,000 times more valuable than what a teacher contributes or a nurse. But we know that's not the case. So part of what I'm suggesting is that we reclaim from markets the question of what counts as a contribution to the common good. And that's a debate that should shape economic policy. Battleground will be back with Michael Sandel after the break. And we're back with Professor Michael Sandel. 
as we get into this reconciliation fight over the next few weeks, there's going to be hopefully changes in the corporate tax code, making corporations pay more. There's money for home and community-based workers. Uh, you know, we're going to start to hopefully see child tax credits for families. We're going to tar- start to see some environmental moves to hopefully restore and mitigate the effects of climate change. However, I go back to the thing about Donald Trump and what he does well, which is the theater. And that's kind of the point you were making is that there's kind of an art to if you're going to take on and really do the policy that helps working people, it isn't that you live just purely in the policy lane, become a a technocratic, competent, functional government, (laughs) restoring government back to normal, because for many people, it was government that was screwing them. They have a cynicism, built-in cynicism about government. And even if you're trying to deploy it competently, you can understand that many people are like, hey, you know, it's not working for me. And so I go back to the theater a bit because you got to animate this somehow. And it's certainly, you know, Donald Trump woke up every day swinging. <laughs> you know, he's always taking somebody on, whether it's Postmaster General or the Washington Post, Bezos Post. He'd go swinging and attempt to animate his policy. And I, got, I guess I fear that even in doing some of the policy that you're suggesting that hopefully maybe will be in this reconciliation bill, we almost got to extend further than that and talk about the art of how you communicate it. And I'd wonder your thoughts on that about building in a friction with corporate elites, CEOs, uh, the people who, quite frankly, are standing in the way of moving us in the direction of a more just society. Part of an effective political rhetoric for a revitalized democratic politics has to take on uh, sources of power, elites, including corporate elites, including the role the financial industry plays very often in frustrating democracy. I think that's important. FDR did this. There's a long tradition going back in the Democratic Party, especially, to uh, taking on those who stand in the way of democratic equality. But I think it isn't only a matter of calling out corporate elites. I think there's another element that's been missing in the Democratic Party's political rhetoric. And that's a broader uh, moral vision of solidarity. The Democratic Party has been very alive to questions of distributive justice and inclusion. And those are certainly moral issues of great importance. But it has somehow allowed conservatives to have a monopoly on the language of community and patriotism and belonging. And here, Faiz, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, because I thought about this listening to Bernie Sanders' political speeches and his campaigns. And as you know, I'm an admirer of of Bernie, and I agree with his economic policies. I thought one element that was missing was connecting the critique of the structural inequalities that we have allowed to develop with the language of patriotism, community, and belonging. Why should patriotism be the monopoly of conservatives? Because if you think about it, over these four decades of globalization, part of what that really has consisted in is the development of a version of finance capitalism that does not heed or care about national borders or national allegiances. To the contrary, it's coincided with a rhetoric of transcending borders as if this were a move in the direction of openness and enlightenment and tolerance. And somehow that became connected to free capital flows regardless of the 
uh, systemic instabilities they created. So it seems to me that the Democratic Party needs to think through how to connect its economic message with evoking a sense of community and belonging, a sense of mutual responsibility among citizens that I think has to talk about the nation, about what it is to be members of a, of a shared political project. What do you think of that? I, I agree with it. And one of my favorite moments, he did this riff. It was one time. I wish he had done it more often. But it was along the lines of saying, are you truly free if you're drowning in student debt? Are you truly free if you can't afford the health care? Are you truly free if you can't get your kids to go to college because you, you don't have the money to do it? Are you truly free you know, if you're living paycheck to paycheck? And you go down the riff. And I thought it was an effort to try to reclaim the words freedom and liberty, to have the notions of what it truly means of being American and honing in on American values of freedom and liberty and trying to reclaim those in the economic justice context. What you're also saying is there's a degree of economic nationalism that attaches to it, that, hey, the privilege and honor of being an American citizen, something that I felt, quite frankly, as an, as an immigrant, uh, a family of immigrants come to America, that we pay the taxes that we are honored to be part of and embedded within an American society that then bestows benefits back to us in various forms through wonderful parks or firefighters, whatever it might be, that society is taking care of us just as we want to pay into that society and that it is a common bond. And I think you're right that there's some economic nationalism to care and, and truly economic democracy, particularly when you take on these large conglomerates who are multinational in scope and probably don't give a damn as much about the American workers as just cheap labor anywhere in the world, that you have to fight for an ethic of common, we're in this together and it is it is our lot, right, for, that we're fighting for. Right, right. And to pick up on the language of freedom, this can be taken in two ways. That litany of questions you just mentioned. One way of taking that is to say, no, as an individual, I'm not free, I'm insecure. And that's why we need universal health care and access to education and relief from college debt and so on. But there's a further dimension of freedom that I think we need to weave into a revitalized public discourse for progressives. And that is the idea that we are not only free as individuals, important though that is, really to be free requires that we think of ourselves as democratic citizens with a meaningful voice in shaping the forces that govern our collective destiny. And to be free in the sense of being a self-governing democratic citizen requires not only that we have income security and healthcare security and access to good education and a chance to achieve for ourselves and for our families. It also requires that we identify with our fellow citizens, that we see ourselves as engaged in a common project. So rebuilding a sense of American community and mutual obligation among citizens, that's a dimension of freedom of civic freedom that is lost if we focus only on enabling people to be free as individuals. Right. Well, Professor Sandel, this has been an, a wonderfully enlightening conversation. Thank you for making the time for it. I want to thank you for this conversation and thank you for the important work that you are doing to try to connect the world of politics with ideas and hopes for regeneration.
Thanks, Saeed. Thanks so much to Professor Michael Sandel for joining us on Battleground this week. We've been getting some excellent thoughts and feedback from our listeners. So if there's someone you think we should have on Battleground or a topic you'd like us to cover, leave us a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rosell is our executive producer. 